Welcome to the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our latest issue. Let's get started. Early atypical onset neurodegenerative diseases often present as a perplexing enigma to the practitioner and patient, and family frustration is common. Unfortunately, these atypical early-onset presentations often take a long period of evaluation before a diagnosis becomes clear. Thorough workup of laboratory tests, imaging, and cerebral spinal fluid biomarkers is necessary. Serial monitoring and a multidisciplinary approach are also key. In this article, Newhouse and colleagues present a case of an early-onset neurodegenerative disorder with features of atypical Parkinsonianism initially diagnosed as Lyme disease. They summarize the evolution of the patient's diagnostic workup and attempted treatments and review the current clinically available data to assess neurodegenerative disorders. In doing so, they demonstrate how these data can rule out certain diagnoses even when the final diagnosis remains unclear. Cerebral spinal fluid biomarkers can help rule in or out Alzheimer's disease. Regional patterns of brain parenchymal volume loss on MRI can help distinguish between neurodegenerative diseases. Neuroimaging can also help in ruling in or out central nervous system findings of infections such as Lyme disease. Although the diagnosis in this case remains unclear to date, the authors highlight the importance of these cases as they are common. They also demonstrate how diagnoses should also be revisited when there is no treatment response and provide strategies to elicit useful information despite the unknown etiology. Signs and symptoms of subthreshold depression are risk factors for the development of more severe forms of the disease. While subthreshold depression can significantly interfere with daily life, therapeutic management strategies remain mostly undefined. Although some antidepressants are considered the standard of care for depression treatment, their use in subthreshold forms of the disorder is controversial. Use of food supplements or probiotics has been studied as adjunctive therapy to antidepressant drugs for mild to moderate depression. The objective of this six-week randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial was to assess the effects of the combination of SAMI and Lactobacillus plantarum HEAL-9 on the overall symptomatology of mild to moderate depression. Supplementation with the combination resulted in fast and clinically relevant effects after two weeks of intake. The combination was safe and significantly improved symptoms of depression, anxiety, and cognitive and somatic components. The authors note that the effect of this novel treatment was independent of the severity of the symptoms, unlike traditional antidepressants that have minimal benefits for subthreshold or mild to moderate depression. The study was supported by Neutralnia SRL. Suicidal behavior in epileptic patients appears to be related to multiple factors. 
Psychiatric disorders are more common in epileptic patients than in the general population and contribute to this risk. In spite of the high risk of suicidal behavior with the use of anti-epileptic drugs, studies have shown that the benefits of anticonvulsant therapy often outweigh the risks. Timely consultation with a psychiatrist is invaluable to the care of these patients, particularly those with multiple risk factors. The authors of this article identify characteristics common among epileptic patients prescribed levotracium who report suicidal ideation or exhibit suicidal behavior. Their review does not focus on establishing an association between the drug and suicidality. Instead, the authors take a closer look at suicidal patients who are prescribed the medication. In this context, they also present a case that highlights the need for increased vigilance by care providers for neuropsychiatric complications in fragile epileptic patients prescribed levotracium, especially following dose adjustment. This review reveals a number of risk factors among patients taking levotracium. The authors maintain that individuals with these risk factors constitute a specific group of patients with epilepsy who have an increased vulnerability to suicidal ideation or behavior if prescribed this medication and therefore should be monitored closely. The risk of suicidality needs to be balanced with the risk of uncontrolled seizures. Previous studies have shown no consistent examinations for testing the ability of patients to consent to treatment in hospital emergency departments, or EDs. The primary objective of this continuing medical education offering was to compare providers' opinions with three assessment tools to determine the ability of both medical and psychiatric patients to consent to treatment in the ED. The study was conducted at a Level 1 Inner City General Hospital ED. The study participants comprised a random sample of English-speaking patients aged 18 years and older who presented with any medical or psychiatric complaint. Each patient was administered three tools, the standard ED consent form, the Aid to Capacity Evaluation, or the ACE, and the mini-mental state examination. The results of these assessments were then compared to the provider's opinion of the patient's ability to provide consent. There was a high level of consistency with the provider's assessment and the other assessment tools on the patient's ability to consent. Most patients, both medical and psychiatric, showed the capacity to consent. However, this was less true for psychiatric patients with schizophrenia. Results of the ACE showed that patients with schizophrenia presenting to the ED were significantly less able to understand their illnesses and treatments, and thus were less able to give consent. Read this interesting study to find out more about this important topic. Clozapine is indicated for treatment-resistant schizophrenia, which is defined as a failure to appropriately respond to at least two trials of different antipsychotics. However, only 30 to 60% of patients will respond to this agent. There have been studies of clozapine augmentation with various agents with mixed results, but no studies considering the combination with long-acting injectable antipsychotics. 
This study evaluated the effectiveness of the combination of long-term injectable antipsychotics with clozapine in the management of treatment-resistant schizophrenia using a variety of outcome measures of symptomatology, healthcare utilization, and quality of life. A mirror image study design was employed to review outcome measures two years pre- and post-combination of clozapine with a long-acting injectable antipsychotic in a small sample of patients with chronic schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. A statistically significant reduction was found in emergency department visits and hospital admissions in the two years post-combination and there was a trend toward decreased substance use and improved quality of life with the combination. The authors recommend that physicians consider a combination of clozapine and a long-acting injectable antipsychotic in treatment-resistant schizophrenia, as this appears to reduce healthcare utilization in terms of emergency department visits and a number of hospital admissions. The combination also allows for lower doses of clozapine, which can help lead to improved tolerability and adherence with treatment. The study was supported by the University of Calgary Department of Psychiatry Mental Health Research Funding Competition for Trainees. The objective of this study was to compare the rate of hospitalizations for pneumonia in patients with a psychotic or bipolar disorder who were prescribed one of four second-generation antipsychotics prior to admission. This retrospective cohort study included patients who were medically admitted for pneumonia to an academic medical center or its associated health system hospital. Medical records of 872 admissions were included for all adults with a diagnosis of schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder or bipolar disorder, prescribed clozapine, olanzapine, quetiapine, or risperidone prior to admission. There was no significantly increased risk of pneumonia for patients taking olanzapine or quetiapine prior to admission compared to risperidone. When controlling for various factors, treatment with a combination of antipsychotics, including clozapine and clozapine alone, was associated with an increased risk of pneumonia, compared to treatment with risperidone, olanzapine, or quetiapine alone. The authors maintain that an association between clozapine and pneumonia exists. Additional research is needed to elucidate risk factors and potential prevention strategies for clozapine-associated pneumonia. Awareness of clozapine-associated pneumonia is important for clinicians, both in medical and psychiatry practices. Stress-induced changes in pharmacokinetics can significantly alter the plasma levels of some drugs, such as clozapine. In this brief report, a case is described of a middle-aged man with schizoaffective disorder bipolar type who showed sustained elevation in clozapine levels three days after discontinuation. Before the clozapine levels were drawn, he had developed acute bacterial pneumonia and signs of acute bacterial meningitis, followed by neuroleptic malignant syndrome after he received multiple doses of intravenous haloperidol for worsening psychosis and aggressive behavior. Existing literature on this topic is also reviewed 
to investigate potential reasons for sustained clozapine levels during acute inflammatory stress and neuroleptic malignant syndrome. In the era of COVID-19 infection, physicians are being called to the front lines to assist with the management of critically ill patients. Many of these providers normally work only in outpatient settings and have not cared for critically ill individuals in the intensive care units for several years. In this issue's Rounds in the General Hospital article, the authors present a case vignette of a man with COVID-19 infection who was intubated, placed on mechanical ventilation, and administered continuous sedation. They also review the epidemiology of this illness, the experience of healthcare providers caring for those with COVID-19 infections, commonly used sedative, analgesic agents, and protocols, and the management of acute withdrawal phenomenon that may arise during weaning from sedation. Please visit us online at primarycarecompanion.com to read articles and features related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Physicians on the front lines in the United States and around the world discuss the challenges faced by healthcare providers in a variety of settings such as intensive care units, psychiatric wards, and community mental health centers. We also feature a variety of case reports documenting the recent increased incidence of panic disorder, mania, psychosis, and suicidal ideation, as well as outcomes with novel therapeutic approaches for treatment of COVID-19. We are constantly posting new material related to the COVID-19 crisis to give you the most up-to-date and timely information. As an all-electronic journal, PCC has an unlimited amount of space in which to publish articles and features. We welcome ideas that any of you may bring to our attention, for we want to expand both the breadth and depth of our articles and specialty sections. Please take advantage of the open invitation to join many of your colleagues in submitting your research to PCC. We also ask that you keep us abreast of trends you see in your practice and topics that would be interesting to explore. Thanks for joining me for this summary of offerings in our current issue of the Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me for the next installment of the PCC Podcast, your place for CNS soundbites.